So we are finishing our series in Acts 17, you know, Paul in Athens. And so Paul has entered the city of Athens. He found it to be full of idols, and he is speaking these words. He started out in the Agora, which is the marketplace, and then they brought him to, uh, it's called Mars Hill, or the, the Areopagus, or Areopagus, however you want to pronounce it. It's actually uh, two words in the Greek, Areo and Pegu. Uh, but brought him up there, whether it was to the hill or whether it was to the assembly that used to meet on the hill, he is now presenting this message about Christ to an audience that does not have a biblical background. And therefore, there's been so much that we can learn in this passage about how we can bring the message of Jesus Christ to those that do not have the same type of biblical background that maybe we used to assume, maybe rightly, maybe wrongly, in the culture around us. Because more and more, the people around us are not starting from a place of, of biblical literacy and understanding basics. And so understanding the basic truths about God and man so that the gospel will, will make sense. And so we have one more um, passage here. Uh, part of this, he's, he's talked to them about idolatry, noticing this. And we live in a world that is full of idols too. Maybe different kinds, but lots of idols. He's talked to them about the nature of the true God in contrast to uh, the, the false uh, idolatrous gods that they were looking at. But we're going to see in this last part here that he calls them for a response. And that's important to realize, that there is a response that is required. There is there's decision time. That this is not just interesting truth to put out there for you to uh, just wonder about or be enamored, uh, but this is something that demands that calls a, a response from you. And so if you have never responded to this call, I pray that God would work in your heart even during this message and that you would respond in the way that this is calling you to respond. So may this help us all to learn how to share the gospel better, but may it also, for us as Christians too, teach us truth about God and how we need to respond and acknowledge who he is and also how we can bring this truth to the people in the world around us. So let's read this whole section again starting with verse 16. So this will also be the parts that we've already, already uh, discussed in the previous two weeks. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. <clears throat> Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Another said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and their foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now keep that in mind. This way they love to hear new things. So let's bring it, let's the, the new story of the week. And what we're going to see when we get to the part for today is this is not just about give me something new and next week it'll be something else. But this is something that is new but also permanent and something that uh, is not just to tickle your ears but demands a response. So now verse 22 Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along 
and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So he's starting with them, connecting with them, some, finds something in their, their worldview, their, their culture. Uh, they obviously were religious, and here they admitted there was some God they didn't understand. He said, well, I'm going I'm to tell you about this unknown God, and that he's actually the true God, and he's actually the only God. So he starts by connecting with them, but then he quickly moves to correcting them and replacing their false thoughts, their false doctrine about God, with what is actually biblically true about God, what is actually the reality about God. So we see him do this in this next section. And also there's so much here. If you meditate on these verses, so much that you can learn about the character of God. It talks about God as creator. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So he's the creator. He's also Lord over everything. He has the right to command. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's also the provider. He's the sustainer of our lives. That if God didn't sustain this world and provide everything that we need, uh, we would be gone in an instant. He upholds this world at every moment, gives us what we need. Uh, to people that think, well, I don't, I don't need God, uh, think about the air you're breathing. And we do need God for every moment. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So he's sovereign and he directs as well. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So we see here, he's saying that God is personal and he created you to have a personal relationship with you. He's not a God that just created this world and we'll see what happens, what life forms appear one day and doesn't really know us, but he created this world knowing that you in particular would one day exist because that's what he set up and wanting to have a relationship with you. That relationship with us is broken because of sin, but that is why Jesus came to repair their relationship so that we can find him and know him and, and treasure him. And so God is not the world, he's telling them, uh, but he is also not far away. He is uh, in, our, in our midst. He is, he is with us and there for us to turn to. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine being like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. That's where we finished last time. Saying again, look at all these idols that you have. You have created them as images that you have made. But realize, actually, who made who? It is God who made you. Mankind was made in his image, in God's image. And therefore, uh, don't think that God is, is stone or marble or, or metal. Uh, he is more like us because he made us in his image. He is far different, but we are made in his image and for a relationship with him. And that's why deep down everyone knows that God is there. And that's why we can, uh, can seek for him. People have a basic knowledge, but they don't have enough without the gospel to actually save them. 
And that's why more needs to be presented to them. We have enough to make us accountable, but in our sinful hearts, we resist. So now we get into the last part of this, and this is the part for today's message, starting with verse 30. The times of ignorance God over, overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, and among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So let us look at this for today. Great things that we can think about. So our first point that we're going to have we draw from this is that the truth about God demands a response. The truth about God demands a response. Paul had laid out these, this truth, this uh, true doctrine about God, had corrected them with the false things that they were thinking, that God needed these temples. He needed them to serve him. And God is not like that. He doesn't, he doesn't need us. He doesn't need our temples. He's self-sufficient. Um, corrected, you know, with the Epicureans and the Stoics believed. But this is not just a new philosophy to file away, but it demands a response of our, our minds and our hearts. And this is what is referred to as, as repentance. This is why he says in this passage, the times of ignorance God overlooked. That doesn't mean that uh, that God didn't care before. That doesn't mean that uh, everyone was, was saved before this. What it means is that God hadn't brought his judgment yet. There's still this time of warning and waiting, but we're going to see later in this passage that judgment is coming. Now is the time to repent because there's a day of judgment that's at, at hand. And we don't know how long it's going to be. You don't know how long it's going to be. And to turn to repent now. So yeah, in the times of ignorance, God overlooked and there was uh, not as clear of a revelation about uh, how God would save. God had talked to the, uh, the, the Hebrews. He had given them plenty. He appointed them to the Messiah that was to come and they could have their faith in the Messiah that was to come. But now God had made it very clear who this Messiah was. And it was very specific now who we need to turn to. But now it says he commands all people everywhere to repent. And so repentance is part of the message of the gospel. And what does this mean, to, to repent? And I think we need to avoid two different errors. One is taking repentance out of uh, the gospel and thinking, you don't need to repent. What, why? That would, some people are afraid that would be adding works to salvation. It's not. Okay, and it's, it biblically calls us to repent, but depending on your background, I want to make sure that you understand what repentance actually means. I was raised uh, from a young age in the Roman Catholic Church. And growing up in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, the way that they've translated in their Bibles, the word that we translate as repent um, gets translated by, was, was translated by Jerome in uh, days past as do penance. And so sometimes if you think repent, repentance means beat yourself up for your sins, then no, that's not what we're talking about. Repentance doesn't mean beat yourself up for your sins. 
you know, just flagellate yourself and uh, self-suffering. It is not your suffering that brings you to salvation. Okay, so it's not that type of repentance. Uh, now, there is a broken heart that comes, I think, with genuine repentance that may show itself in different ways in your life. But as we acknowledge our sin, we recognize who Jesus is, that he is the Lord, and as Lord, he has right to command our lives. And as we realize, oh, I have sinned against the Lord, the good Lord. I mean, that should rend and, and, and break our hearts. Not in a way that we're saved because of that, but so that it, it breaks us away from our sin and it turns us to the one that can save you from your sin. You don't need to beat yourself up for your sin because that has already been done. The, the punishment has been paid. Jesus Christ has taken the beating for us in our place. And so the repentance that we have, what, a better way to think about it, it's a turning. We're turning to Jesus Christ. And if we're turning to him, it means turning away from other things as well. So maybe let's say it like this. Repentance means, and this isn't a strict definition, but this is what I think is getting at what the Bible's talking about. Repentance means turning to Jesus Christ and turning away from your wrong beliefs and rebellion against God. I think that's hopefully a, a good way to think about it. Now, the Bible talks about salvation by faith. You're saved by, by faith in God and Jesus Christ specifically. Does that mean there's two things that you need? You need repentance and you need faith. You have to have these two things. Well, sometimes it talks about faith. Sometimes it talks about repentance. Sometimes it talks about faith and repentance. And I think the best way to think about this is that it is two sides of the same coin. Okay, so the, the coin that we need is repentant faith. And one side is, you know, heads is, is faith, uh, tails is repentance, and we're turning towards Jesus Christ, accepting him, which means turning away from our rebellion against him. It also means turning away from wrong beliefs. There are, it is head knowledge as well. It's not just head knowledge, but head knowledge does need to be a part of it. And that's why Paul, remember, has just been telling them, don't think that the real God lives in temples made by us. Don't think he needs us. He's correcting their thinking and instead filling it in with correct theology, truth about God. So there are things in our head that we do need to change our thinking. So if you're turning to Jesus Christ, but your mindset of who Jesus Christ is is someone that I would say that's not, that may be your Jesus Christ, but that's a figment of your imagination, and that's not even close to Jesus that actually exists, who's in the pages of Scripture. That's, that's, that Jesus cannot save. That's imaginary Jesus. But you turn to the real Jesus who is there, who is, who is Lord. Okay, there's no other Jesus uh, that is not Lord. And Jesus Christ is the, the God-man. These are some basic truths that we need to, to believe that he is the Son of God, eternal Son of God. He's always been God, and that he came down to this earth, had humanity joined to his person, so that he is now the God-man, fully God and fully man. And according to Scripture, you need to believe both of those, that he is uh, the eternal God, and that he also is an authentic human being. He had to be both to pay for the sins of human beings. He had to be a human to pay for the sins of humans, and he had to be God in order for his one sacrifice to be value enough to cover the sins of, of all, of any that will turn to him for salvation. But that presents who he is, and that, that is a necessary 
belief. And you have to believe that he actually came in history. Uh, he was born. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. You have to believe that he died on the cross, that he was dead, that he was buried, and that he was raised to new life. I mean, that's what our baptism represents. And you have to believe these things actually happened. Not just it happened in your heart or it happened as a myth, but Jesus literally was nailed to the cross. Jesus literally was put in a tomb. Jesus literally on the third day came out and was alive again. And he's risen to heaven. He will come again. So there are basic things, but it's not just head knowledge. We also, with, a, with the core of our being and who we are, we turn to him and embrace him. Now, does this mean that you have to have your whole life straightened out to come to Christ? No, it doesn't mean that. The Christian life is a process of growing as a Christian every day, and there's going to be ups and downs. Hopefully, but it's going to be a matter of improvement as you live your Christian life. But you're going to be working on different sins for your whole life, battling some, having victory over many. And um, so it doesn't mean that you have achieved perfection, but I think it does mean that you recognize that Jesus is Lord, rebelling against him is bad, and not just in your heart bad, or in your head bad, but in your heart you realize it's bad. You're convicted of that, and you turn to Jesus Christ away from your rebellion and embrace him as your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. And that is what Paul is calling the, the people of Athens to do. And that's what he's calling you to do as well, as he speaks to you through these words as well that God commands you also to repent. Notice it says, uh, but now he commands all people to repent. It doesn't say he suggests that you repent. You know, he, he mildly uh, gives you this idea. He commands. This is a necessary thing that you must do. If you don't repent, you don't turn to him, you've racked up more sin now by disobeying him. This is the only way for you to be saved. And this is the only way for anyone, for everyone, he commands all people everywhere to repent. There's only one gospel for this world, for the human race. And whether it's for the, the Jews, whether it's for people in Athens, whether it's for people in West, West Michigan, and no matter your ethnicity, your background, your socioeconomic status, whatever it is, there is one Savior. And he is the one that you need to turn to you. I can't make you but I implore you, and God commands you to do this. And I pray that through the Holy Spirit, speaking to you now through his word, that God would just grab a hold of your heart and that you would willingly turn to him, willingly because he makes you willing, that he would grab you and that you would turn to him and receive Jesus Christ, the Lord, as your Savior. And it's something you can, you should do now if you have never done that. And you will find a Savior waiting for you that is ready to embrace you despite any sin that you've committed because you will find that he has already paid for every one of those sins, past, present, and future, on the cross in your place. So, repentance is commanded. And then he gives a reason why we need to do this. Turn to Christ soon because the day of judgment is coming. Verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. There is a day of judgment that is coming. Now there's a sense where there's a day of death that is coming for all of us. And death is a form of judgment. And 
the Bible says the God is appointed unto man once to die, and after this comes the judgment. There's also a day that is coming that is at hand. It could happen before we finish the sermon where Jesus will return to this earth and uh, bring a period of judgment to this earth and that will accumulate eventually in the, what is called the, the great right throne judgment that you read about in Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Stand before the great white throne uh, to be judged. And is your name found in the Lamb's book of life? But notice it also says that he has, God has appointed this and um, he is at uh, the time of judgment by a man whom he has appointed. We think of, well, God's the judge. God is the judge, that's true. But this is saying there's also a man that is appointed and it's the same one. Because again, Jesus is the God-man. So eventually the one that will judge this world is the one that is fully God and it is also put in the hands of an actual human being who also happens to be God, who came and also died for this world and offers salvation. Now maybe, maybe you're thinking, well, I heard, isn't there a verse that says that Jesus didn't come to judge this world? And there is. In the, in the Gospel of John 3, 17, it says, I did not come into this world to condemn the world. The word condemn is the same word as, as judge. But it says there that uh, he came not to condemn this world, but to save this world because this world is condemned already. It's not a matter if there has to be a verdict, are we guilty or not? God knows we're all guilty. We come into this world guilty as with the sin of Adam and we, as soon as we can, we commit our own sins as well. And you know in your heart that, that you're, you're guilty as well. We break God's commands. We don't give him the, uh, the praise, the glory that he deserves. We do things that lead people away from God. We do things that hurt other people, that hurt our relationship with God. And, and we are guilty. But there is a day that is coming and where judgment is put in the hands of Jesus Christ. So he's, when his first coming is, is his mission of salvation, he came to, um, for this world to, so we could see him and so that he could die on the cross for us, for believers, so we could uh, be saved because of his death and resurrection in our place. And that is offered to you. We're in this time where salvation is offered. But then there will be a final time where that period is done. And now it is time of salvation. And that there is no more time to, to change your mind. In the Gospel of John, a little bit later, it talks about this being entrusted to the Son of God. Let me read you this passage. This is John 5, 22. For the Father judges no one, wow, but has given all judgment to the Son. They're both equally God. There's one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Focus on that. That's the offer of the gospel that is for you. If you believe and you turn to Christ in that repentant faith that we're talking about, you don't have to come into this judgment. You pass from death to life. You've died with him. You've been judged with him already. And that's what being baptized represents, going into the water, that you're, you're died with Christ. You've already been judged with him and raised to new life with him. Verse 25 
Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live resurrection. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So turn to Christ. Judgment is coming and he is the judge. Turn to him as Savior and you will not have to face him as judge. If you do not turn to him as Savior, you will have to face him as judge being condemned righteously by him. Now that's a lot to claim for a person. If I got up here and claimed, well, I think I'm the judge. I'm the judge of mankind. I would be wrong in many ways. Uh, But also, I don't have anything to back that up. But guess what? Jesus definitely has something to back it up because God sent him to this world, did miracles through him, and the ultimate miracle, the ultimate stamp of validation is God raised him from the dead. God validated Jesus Christ by raising him from the dead. So at the end of verse 31, and of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And this is where, as Paul speaks these words to the Athenians, uh, they were interested, but at this point, they had a problem with it. Because at this point, uh, they, this, was a, this stuck in their minds. This stuck in their, in, in their throat. They couldn't accept this because for them, the, this idea of being raised from the dead, that was just uh, un- unpalatable to them. But we see here that the resurrection was this affirmation, this proof of who Jesus really was, who he claimed to be. And this also implies that he, he died. He went to the cross and he was buried, and he rose again for us. The Christian faith is a historical faith. It is about something that happened in time and space uh, that actually happened in this world. It wasn't just something that happens in our, in our hearts. And it's important to realize, um, when we talk about the good news, the gospel, this is actually news about something that has actually happened. A um, hundred years ago, theologian Jake Gretchen Machen wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism. And talking about uh, the, the book title, Christianity and Liberalism, he meant that there's Christianity and there's liberalism, and they're not the same thing. And he was talking about the liberalism of that day, and uh, with a group of pastors from Grand Rapids who were reading this book together because it is so valuable, because uh, today just repla- replace it with progressivism. And you have the same, same things that people are denying. But I want to read you a little passage from this, because I, I thought this was great. Machen writes, 100 years ago, For gospel means good news, tidings, information about something that has happened. A gospel independent of history is a contradiction in terms. The Christian gospel means not a presentation of what has always been true, but a report of something new, something that imparts a totally different aspect to the situation of mankind. The situation of mankind was desperate because of sin, but God has changed the situation by the atoning death of Christ. That is no mere reflection upon the old, but an account of something new. We are shut up in this world 
as in a beleaguered camp. To maintain our courage, the liberal preacher offers us exhortation. Make the best of the situation, he says. Look on the bright side of life. But unfortunately, such exhortation cannot change the facts. In particular, it cannot remove the dreadful fact of sin. Very different is the message of the Christian evangelist. He offers not reflection on the old, but tidings of something new. Not exhortation, but a gospel. We're proclaiming to you news. Jesus has come. This has happened. He died on the cross for sinners. He is risen from the dead for sinners. He is the judge and that you can turn to him. This is reality. This is truth. This is history and this is something to respond to. This news demands a response. We see here in the next part, 32 through 34, that people responded in different ways. People responded in three different ways according to this these verses. In the same way, people hearing this message respond in different ways. People have heard this. Some mocked. Some, they mocked, they scoffed. We see that first, verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. The resurrection for the, for the Greeks that was an unpalatable thing for the Greeks. That it was a, it was a deal breaker for them. They wanted to escape this world into the, you know, the spiritual world instead. The physical was contaminated and evil. To come back to this evil world, that doesn't make sense. You wanted to be gone from this cage. Um, 500 years ago, one of the Greek writers had written, uh, when the dust has soaked up a man's blood, once he is dead, there is no resurrection. Just that... That's it. Maybe you live in the, you know, in the spirit world later on, if anything. So this is something, when it hit that, it's like, okay, you've lost this here, Paul. I'm a resurrection. We don't want to come back to a, a real world. But the resurrection is, yeah, you don't live as a floaty spirit on a cloud forever. You know, Jesus Christ, you're raised from the dead like Jesus was. You get a body again, a different type of body, powered by the spirit, but it, I think it's going to be more physical than you imagine. And we spend eternity... Uh, you know, not even in, in heaven, but on the new earth. It is much more physical. God created this earth and called it good. We're going to live in this restored, improved earth that he's going to have for us. But I think we need to realize that there are, just as there are many things that were unpalatable to the, uh, to the Greeks, there are, are many things that are unpalatable uh, to people in our world today. And we just need to realize that as you're presenting the Christian message there's parts you talk about, you can talk about, yeah, God loves everyone. Oh, great, we all get that. Of course he should. We're great people. He should love everyone. Um, but you start talking about other things. You start talking about sin, and that becomes an issue. You start talking about the fact that we are not the Lord and master of our lives, but we're under his authority. People don't like that. They want to be captain of their own soul, master of their own fate. They don't want to bow the knee to someone else. So many things that are sticking points. People, the wrath of God, that Jesus took the wrath of God on our sin. I don't want to believe that God has wrath. I believe he's full of love. That's nice. But I don't want to believe he's, he has wrath or angry or that he's angry at me. I'm a swell person. Why would he be angry? Or my friends, why would he be angry at them? Because they don't view sin for what it is. They don't believe that God is, a, is holy. 
that he would have a, a righteous indignation against sin, which he should. What kind of God, if, if you had a, just a human judge and he wasn't outraged by, by murder or rape or terrible things, what kind of judge would that be? What would the judge of the universe be like if he didn't find sin to be an abhorrent thing? He also came and died for our sin. He is a God of wrath and he is a God of love, but he is both of these. Some people find the cross to be an awful thing. Uh, you know, the, for the Jews, the Messiah go to a cross? That can't be. A lot of people today, the message of the cross, that someone would take my place on the cross? How can that be? That's solving things through violence? Somebody can't take somebody else's sin? But that's the message, is that Jesus Christ became guilty of your sin when he went to the cross. And he took that upon himself. And that's how you're saved. That's the only way. You have to believe this message of substitution. God loved you enough to be a substitute for you, to take the wrath against sin. His wrath, he took it upon himself and paid for that. Of course, big things today, you get into what the Bible teaches about gender and sexuality. For so many people today, that's going to be, I cannot even um, say, I don't want anything to do with your God. If it doesn't agree with uh, what, you know, uh, we teach today, not last year, but today, on uh, new views of gender and sexuality and freedom and all these things. People talk about tolerance, but you see it hits its limit, its limit really quick once you say one of these things. Really quick once it's something they don't want to believe. So some mocked. So Christian, I need to ask you, as you say you care about the gospel, you care about the people around you, are you willing to risk mockery in order to glorify God and save people from hell? Are you willing to risk mockery, rejection, in order to present the gospel of salvation to people so that they can be saved? Because it's going to happen. And a lot of Christians, they are not. They're, they're most at times, it keeps, our mouth, it keeps us from opening our mouths. So from Paul, we need to learn here one thing. For, for many of us, we learn from Paul to be bold. Now for others, we can learn from Paul also here how to be artful in our boldness. Bold but artful together. But we can't be afraid of being mocked. That might happen. Remember, it's not ultimately about you, it's about God. And you're trying to reach them for salvation. And if they turn to Christ, you've, you've helped save someone for eternity. That's worth it. It's worth that risk. You can have some mockery that you endure for a little bit to save somebody in eternity in hell, turn them into a worshiper of Jesus Christ for eternity. It's worth it. I want to point out here that Paul's method here, you look at this and you think, well, if we can follow Paul's method exactly, everyone will come to faith. This is the perfect method. Well, it's not the only way that people presented the gospel in Scripture. And notice, too, it doesn't mean that it's, it worked infallibly. In fact, most of the people here still rejected. And so we just have to realize, too, there's not like this, this perfect method that if you just do things right, it's guaranteed people will come to Christ. And, and we want to do our best, but we can't make that happen. So we pray for God because he's the one that can reach into hearts and turn them. He can do what we cannot do. 
They're still responsible to turn, but God is the one that is going to also reach in. So we, we pray for God to be at work in hearts. That's why I pray for you. Um, if you're hearing this message, that God would work in your heart for that. You're still responsible to turn to him. I'm praying that God would turn your heart to, to make you willing to do that. So we pray, because it's not up to us. So first, some mocked. We also see here that some, it says, others said, we will hear you again about this. So some, well, to put it positively, they wanted to hear more. Okay, so it wasn't a complete rejection. They wanted to hear more, but they weren't saved yet. And I think this is a lesson to us as well, that sometimes, oftentimes today, salvation takes time. Evangelism takes time with people. I mean, salvation happens in existence in an instant, but helping them to get to that point, uh, again, to use that football analogy, is sometimes it's a matter of just trying to get another set of downs so you can keep moving them across that field to finally you, you cross the plane into the end zone for them to be saved. And we want to just keep their hearing, keep them understanding, getting closer, try to avert, avoid a turnover. Don't do something that makes them just reject things, but it takes time. Sometimes it happens quickly, but a lot of times you've got to be patient with it, especially people that don't understand and that are far off. Now, sometimes people say, I want to hear more, and what it means is I'm delaying this because I really don't want to accept this. And this might be true, but not yet. Because if I come to God, if I come to Christ and admit he's Lord, it means I'm not Lord. It means there's some things I'm doing in my life I probably got to give up. So let's push this off for a while. So if this is just a delaying tactic, that is, that's bad. Maybe it's good that's not complete rejection, but don't stall forever. And don't delay because you could die in a moment. Christ could return. And then you've got a whole different set of situations that you're going to be dealing with. Don't stall forever. Don't stall your way into hell. That's what many people do. They think they're going to wait and, well, at the end of life, and they don't make it that far. Interest is not the same thing as salvation. So God is calling. He's commanding to repent, talking to their culture. Before I get to the last response, I want to read to you just a paraphrase of Acts 17. It's from a book, uh, included in a book by James Sire, Why Good Arguments Often Fail. But this is a paraphrase for the university. So imagine that Paul was coming today and he was coming to a, a campus, let's say, you know, Grand Valley, University of Michigan, and he's going to present his message there to that culture. He might say something like this, and speaking to our world today. Men and women of the university, I see that in every way you are very religious. As I walked around the university, I observed carefully your objects of worship. I saw your altar, called the stadium, where many of you worship the sports deity. I saw the science building, where many place their faith for salvation of mankind. I found your altar to the fine arts, where artistic expression and performance seem to reign supreme without subservience to any greater power. And I walked through your residence halls and observed your sex goddess posters, and your beer can pyramids. Yet as I walked with some of you and saw the emptiness in your eyes and sensed the aching in your hearts, I perceived that in your hearts is yet another altar, an altar to the unknown God who you suspect may be there. 
you have a sense that there is something more than these humanistic and self-indulgent gods. What you long for is something unknown I want to declare to you now. The God I'm speaking of is your personal creator. He is not a fabrication or invention of mankind. He's not a part of creation. He stands above it. He is greater and more powerful than you have ever dreamed. This God has given you your life and has set the boundaries of your life. The longing for eternity in your heart was placed there by him. You may try to grope for him, but he is already intimately involved in the creation. It is his creative work in you, his image that makes it possible for you to engage in athletic activities, scientific endeavors, artistic expressions, and even playfulness and sexual pleasure. But this God is calling you to repent. You have worshipped your own creativity instead of acknowledging him as your creator. You have forgotten the giver of the gifts. You have rebelled against your creator and gone your own way of self-indulgence and self-worship. As a result, you have perverted the gifts of life and creativity. You have abused your sexuality through careless indulgence. You have chosen the way of futility and death. And God calls you to turn from serving those false gods to give you life and to bring glory to the living and true God, your creator. God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save and to judge the world. The man Jesus has come to set things right, to bring justice, and to call us back as a warning before judgment. By his death, he offers a way back to God to save us from self-destruction. By his resurrection, he has shown that he has come with power to save and judge the world. As a result, this Jesus has become the pivotal point in history, the central issue for us today, either the stepping stone or the stumbling block. He offers reconciliation with the Creator, and He alone can give it. And this is what is offered to you. You can be like those that mock, those that maybe want to hear more, but you really, maybe you're delaying, or like the third group. It says, Some believed. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Arapagite, and one named Damaris, and others with them. There's a few that did believe. This Dionysius, uh, we don't know anything else about him from Scripture. A church historian of uh, Eusebius writes under the authority of somebody else that uh, this Dionysius became the, the first uh, church leader in Athens. This woman, Damaris, She's a woman, possibly a foreigner to the area. And there's others, at least two more, says others. We don't know much about them from Scripture, but we know that they believed. They received Christ. They followed that they were saved. The question is, how about you? Are you still facing away from God in your rebellion, worshiping the idols of your own making or yourself? Or have you, in repentant faith, turned to Jesus Christ to receive the salvation offered to you? Let's pray. Lord, we give you praise and thanks. We thank you that Jesus Christ, the God-man, has come for salvation and that you have placed judgment in his hands, but he also first offers us salvation. I pray that we would all turn to him 
and embrace him, the Lord, as Savior. Thank you that he died on the cross for sinners and that all that turn to him will receive this salvation the instant they turn to him. May he be glorified in our lives and may you help us to bring this good news of salvation to all in the world around us. Be at work for Christ, for his glory, and in his name we pray. Amen.